All right, we'll just take some questions or feedback or thoughts on... Um, yeah, positive feedback only, but questions could be of any kind, just as long as you're not sending some kind of signal about your intelligence. Just kidding. You can send those signals. We will absorb them. At least Sarah will. Yeah. I don't know why you're doing that. Maybe there will be nothing. Maybe that will be yeah, wonderful. Yeah, And come on up if you have a thought. <laughs> Stand right in front of us. All right. So I guess. Well, do you guys have anything you want to say? <laughs> I knew this was happening 30 seconds ago. <laughs> I, um, I want to say I think I Here's thought that uh, that uh, Daryl's uh, presentation as well was. Uh, a real illustration of, of grace in the sense that you have the right to be wrong and that grace allows uh, a person to, um, to be wrong and, um, and continues to come after them until something brand new is made. And, and that actually is um, one of the great ideas that came out of the Protestant Reformation that um, <clears throat> actually was um, discussed and fought about at the Battle of the Boyne and uh, the, the distinction between um, totalitarianism um, and, um, and, and civil liberty. And, uh, and I think that this very powerful idea that you don't have to agree with me, but that you can come and, and, uh, and we can sit at the table, um, it was very powerful. I mean, I'm, I'm still speechless by the whole thing. But uh, that, what Daryl articulated, was the Reformation lived out in everyday life. Uh, God literally not doing anything for God, but God actually working through a person. And I think you were absolutely right. I think we got a glimpse of Jesus today. <laughs> I mean, I can talk uh, all day. Can yeah, you talk yeah, we can yeah, we can just keep talking. Do you have anything to say? I guess, I, well, yeah, there's a mic. Um, I just want to encourage, <laughs> if there's anybody here, this is like, you know, that you're new to Mockingbird, and this is like the first time you're hearing this, and you're thinking what I was thinking several years ago when I was at my first Mockingbird conference, which was, but where's my list of things I'm supposed to do, and, you know, the Christian life has all these boxes I'm supposed to check that, like, <clears throat> you're that you're free, that you're free, and you're free to go out and live your life, um, and that you're loved in it, and that Jesus knows everything about you, and that that's good news. So anyway, that's just, I just encourage you to go along in that path. Curious, uh, just with, I guess, a culture of virtue signaling, we see the anxiety, the symptoms that you're talking about. Obviously, people um, that are, I guess, engrossed in this, they, need, they seek rest. They seek solutions for this anxiety and this uh, desire to divide. What ways do you see people finding rest, trying to find rest apart from in the gospel? like, and the symptoms of that. 
How are people trying to find rest? Well, what they're really trying to find is not rest, I think, because they're, they're trying to find control. And so you gravitate towards anything you think you can control. And, and that often takes the, I mean, if you think about it in terms of religion, all of the religions we've developed that aren't really called religions, they're all basically cults of control, trying to get the unmanageability of life and of our, in fact, ultimately of ourselves into some kind of shape where we can control it. So you have the um, religion of the parenting where you worship the child and you're trying to control every single variable in their life and as a result you create a, an absolute nightmare for higher education. Um, you have the religion of food and exercise which had, takes the compulsion towards control and, and uh, aims it at the body and it's all about purity and immortality. Well, it's mainly about that. You have um, the cult of social media, which is trying to control how other people think of you through curated images. I mean, you're all, everyone's trying to basically find rest through uh, control, which is really a way of sort of satisfying some kind of law, even momentarily. The problem is, of course, is that none of those things do anything but, as what Luther said, increase despair and doubt. And so you have the escalating mental health crisis, which is um, only going to get worse um, until people can somehow uh, I think, finds their way back or God breaks into life with a little bit of mercy because that's what we're actually looking for. But people don't actually usually want it until control's been wrenched out of their hands. This is what Russell Brand's new book is all about, recovery. It's really quite good. He's not a Christian, but he's just about one. And it's all about the only thing that ever brought him any rest was the complete surrender of his own will to, to something that's not him. And I think that that... I wonder if our culture's not creating a situation where that's going to happen a little bit faster um, because the idea that you can completely have a handle on everything that we're told you need to have a handle on right now um, is just absurd and um, it, it's producing results, consequences at least, a lot faster. I mean, including rest itself, right? I mean, I heard actually you say a couple of years ago at another conference that now with our apps, and I think I saw one of you with, you were checking your sleep app from the night before in the pew this morning, and we've turned rest into work. Like your phone will now tell you that you're not resting enough or well enough or efficiently enough. Get to work resting better. And the only way is to sort of explode the whole thing, which of course is not something that we can do um, for ourselves. We, um, there's the, um, the parable that Jesus tells about the wicked tenants in the vineyard, and he talks about the stone crushing them. And this is not something that we would, any of us would choose for ourselves, but um, we get crushed by that stone, by the app that says we're not even resting well enough. And, but then, uh, we are resurrected, and all of a sudden, rest is something that is given to us rather than something that we can ever achieve on our own. I love how Jesus ends that too. He says, and it is marvelous in our sight. Yeah, yeah. And so, you being crushed. <laughs> Jesus ends that by saying, and it is marvelous in, in our sight, and that, that, that is good news. I mean, God is there, and he will crush you and kill you. And, uh, and so that he can raise you from the dead and, um, and be it, find your peace in him. And, uh, but you need to be totally crushed and destroyed, and it happens to us every day. Praise God.
<laughs> but I find that, that the anxiety that everyone feels is a way of getting into discussion of sin and of, um, dissatisfaction. We, well, we can also use things like bias to talk about sin because most people coming up, they've, they've received an optimistic understanding of themselves that basically says not only do these law, these, these sort of injunctions, imperatives exist, but you have the ability to fulfill them because, look, your neighbor is doing it. And so you think you're alone, you think you're by yourself, and that's, that's a recipe for psychosis. And you, um, uh, so, but when you deal with the, the, you know, like enormous welling up of anxiety and fear, uh, I think it's a way in of talking about, well, you know, something, something's happening here that we should talk about, and maybe we can get back into the categories. I don't know. Thank you for an extraordinary uh, weekend. Um, and I'm careful to ask a question not to signal. But, um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll try to avoid that. But acts of uh, grace I've learned are conveyed by people. Uh, first pastorally, grace was conveyed to me by your father. By, by Father Paul Zoll. Um, could you explain acts of grace that were conveyed to you by people? And um, uh, I'd appreciate any responses you have. Because each of you speaks with remarkable humility as well as, um, as grace and knowledge in, in your talks. So, thank you. Um, well, I see uh, grace every day in my wife, and, uh, and that's not a virtue signal. That is uh, like just a straight up truth in the fact that, um, as Sarah talked about, she's there in the trenches with me and supportive in the ministry, and, um, and when things are good and when things are really bad and when things are really ugly, and she is there the whole time. And I think that she is, um, she's that steady uh, line of support that kind of uh, gets me through the night and that God works through in a gracious way every day to get me through the night, especially when things are really difficult and uh, it looks like there's no hope. Um, she reminds me that um, there is hope and so, and, um, and that um, you can walk away. And so it's been very good and so for me. And, uh, and because of that, I've never walked away. And, um, and, um, and so it's that freedom that she conveys and I think it's active every day in my life. My wife, too, but just a little bit more than his wife. Um, I mean, my husband's better than everyone, but um, <laughs> I will say that the, the, I mean, I feel like marriage is going to be the obvious answer to this question because um, the thing that has struck me about marriage is, and I'm, I, and I'm struck by it all the time like I remind myself if I've had like something stressful has happened at work or um, you know I've written something that I've gotten a little heat for or something I come home and my husband just loves me and none of that matters to him and there is something about like every time I'm like oh I get to go home now you know which for me sometimes not all the time, because home is loud and we have two small children, but sometimes I think, oh, this is what it must mean when we ultimately go home, right? To this place that we're always loved. And I mean, the other place for me that I've received so much grace is actually from my children, because the thing that 
was so shocking about having a baby is that they just love you. Like you don't do anything to earn that. Um, and they think that you're marvelous. And um, my kids are still small, so they still have that. And um, I, uh, I don't know, I just, I mean, that's, it's like this endless thing where they just, they love me. And, and now when I mess up with them, which I do, um, I think I said this at the first talk I ever did for Mockingbird, but a therapist once said to me that she would be out of business if parents learned to say two words to their children, I'm sorry. And that has been a great gift as a parent, a hard and humbling gift. But when I, when I yell or um, when I'm mean to my kids, which sometimes I am, to be able to look at them and say, I'm really sorry. Like, I, you know, I shouldn't do that. And for them to immediately forgive the way that a, a six-year-old does is, um, I mean, I just don't even deserve that. And I'm very grateful for it. So. Well, my wife is, you know, she, she, I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna even attempt to talk about her. She'll kill me if I say the wrong thing, just kidding. She's amazing, and you know, one of the things that she knows, and that other people, you know, if you have a good boss or something like that, she knows when I'm signaling, actually. She's like, what's actually going on? Because you're really anxious right now, and you've told me all the things you've done today and accomplished. Or, let's, you know, here, sit down, let's talk. And that's, I think, a profoundly gracious interaction you have. You get that with your kids sometimes, too. I also have a, um, Paul Walker is, is, is like that for me in my life. But I would say that, you know, I got, some of you know I took a sabbatical for Mockingbird this summer, and that was actually an enormous act of grace for me to figure out we love you as a person, not just for what you produce, and you, you exist apart from your, your work. And so that was a, a, a huge experience that was sort of tr translated, it kind of trickled down into the, everyone else we were around. So that's a um, very present tense example. Any other questions? I'll say one more thing whilst somebody's walking up. I just think that um, everyone who remains in relationship with me day to day is an example of grace in my life. I feel like I'm constantly at work ruining relationships. And so, um, I mean, not like I'm the worst person in the world, but when I, when I can call somebody and they answer, or, and it's not, I mean, obviously that is true of my wife, but you, the people who um, decide to come to church when they know that I'm the one who's gonna be preaching. Um, all of the people who say that meant something to me. These are all like incredible, lightning bolts of grace into my life and just um, without which no nothing would be possible. And so um, it, they don't have to be these amazing things, but just to, um, to have someone in your life who knows a little bit of something about you and stays there with you is worth everything. Uh, yes, uh, David, so when I heard you talk about signaling, it was a little depressing. I mean, I, it was very cynical sitting and observing. And I did read that article in the New York Times on anxiety, and I have three kids in college. My uh, daughter's a freshman at UVA. And, you know, it's clear that there's a lot of self-imposed anxiety. Um, and I don't know how you change that in terms of, you know, so signaling can be a positive thing in terms of a learning 
uh, process. I went to a Jesuit college and it was the best experience I'd ever had in terms of the Socratic method of challenging the truth and you know, uh, really looking for facts and, and developing your own opinions. And I feel like the liberal arts education today strips away, so it, it, it's part of that uh, wrongly targeted signaling that evolves through intergenerationally now, where kids are, they're expected to be neutered and not have opinions or not challenge assumptions. Mm. And I wonder if, the, if you look at that as a um, conduit for what will then become poor signaling or striving for the wrong things. If you could you just answer that in two sentences, that would be appreciated. Well, I also went to a Jesuit college. Just kidding. I mean, I actually, I actually did. I actually did. Um, no, the point here is not to create a mammoth amount of self-consciousness um, around the questions we ask and the things we do. It's to um, unlock the, the, the heart of the gospel, which says your signals about yourself uh, are, don't mean as much to God as his uh, son and uh, what he has done for you. He does not value you according to what you're able to produce for him uh, or the, able to um, mold yourself into. And that is um, life then is lived in response, um, is not lived uh, for love, but from love. Not for love, but from, not for acceptance, but from acceptance. And that makes a big difference. You know, if anyone who isn't, hasn't been seeing, watching The Good Place, the show, um, you should watch it because it's all about how motivation actually infects even our best deeds. And it's, I'm going to talk about it tomorrow in the pulpit, so I'm not going to spoil it. But in, we, we want to encourage people to, to talk. We, the idea in talking about signaling is not to uh, shut people up. It's simply to say that the, at, at the root of the exhaustion and the anxiety is often a question that um, we cannot seem to answer, and the question is, am I enough? Um, am, I, am I lovable? And so that, that, to the degree to which that's coming through all of your career, your work in your career, that's driving it, or if that's driving your relationships romantically, or if that's driving your um, political views, because um, I need to be vindicated or something like that, that is erosive, corrosive and, I think, um, deadly. And the gospel comes in as a foreign beam of light. Um, what did he say today? Jesus is not, we're not there to light the way for Jesus. He lights the way to, for us. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. That's kind of what Nick said last night. So um, I believe in a living God. I don't think people are abandoned to their impulses. I don't think that the world is any really worse off than it's ever been or better off than it's ever been. I think that we're in a place right now where the insights of the Reformation about self-justification being absolutely central to everything you're doing with your waking hours has a lot of traction. And if you're a Christian trying to reach the world with the message of grace, and you're not using it, you're not saying, well, wait a second, what is going on on social media? It seems like everyone's in a competition of, like, of, for goodness or for acceptability, and it, it's making us all really, really lonely and really unhappy. Like, so we have this message, the gospel from, you know, 
straight from the words of Jesus to, that, to, to bring to bear. And so that's all these conferences are. There's just an encouragement for you to hear it because we need to hear it. And maybe collectively we can um, continue to um, look for it or at least think possibly there's another message out there. It's not just the do more, work harder, be stronger. Carrie? I'm oh, sorry, Heidi. Hi. Um, thank you all for extending a lot of grace to us this weekend. Um, my question is, how do we celebrate the Reformation in a way that um, doesn't, that isn't, I guess, dismissive of or, or scornful toward our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church um, in a way that also extends grace to them in a position of humility? Um, well, I think, ironically enough, Catholics have this actually in a, are in a much better stead. Uh, the, the Evangelical Church, by what that I mean in capital E, that's actually looks a lot more like 16th century Rome than 21st century Pope Francis Catholicism. They're actually in a better place. I, I love, you know, actually I, I, I forgot to, I think I cut it, but I wanted to quote a bunch of Catholics today just to say that because I think what you do in the, in the Catholic Church, you're sure that you're going to hear about life and death and forgiveness and um, whenever you go in. If you go into some Protestant churches, you're going to hear only about social causes, or you're going to hear only about personal improvement. And you're never going to hear the story. You're never going to hear the, the word of God, the pardon, the forgiveness, the absolution. So I haven't, I mean, I think the Catholics are actually probably doing better. I, I don't know how to, how to, it's a huge, it's not a monolithic thing. There's a lot of different experiences of Catholicism. But um, I, uh, sometimes I wish I was Catholic, you know, but I, I, I I just want people to find churches where they hear uh, the, the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ. I want to hear them. I don't care what the church says on this time. Maybe that's naive. Maybe that some people in certain traditions would say, well, what about this, that, and the other thing? But that's where I'm at with that whole question. Yeah, I mean, we are, I think, hopefully all are in agreement that grace was not invented 500 years ago. Um, <laughs> One of the uh, stories that I tell my um, newcomers' c c classes at our church is the story of um, the Lord's c covenant w with Abram. This is very, very early, many years before the Reformation, where they make a covenant, and the Lord tells Abram to slice these animals in half and lay them out, and they were going to walk between the animals and the way that people made deals back then. This is sort of the the very old cross my heart and hope to die, right? If I break my end of the, the, the deal, may I end up like these animals? And the two parties would walk the, down the path. And when God makes the covenant with Abram, he puts Abram to sleep. Abram not only doesn't pass between the animals, he is unconscious. This is the most passive possible story that God can say, I'm making a covenant with you and I will uphold both ends. And this is grace. He says, if I break the covenant, it's on me. But if you break the covenant, it's on me too. And of course, we went ahead and broke the covenant and it was on him. 
on that hill again more than 500 years ago. Um, so this is God's story with humanity from the very beginning. Um, as he's pronouncing the curses on Adam and Eve, kicking them out of Eden, he's also saying that the descendants of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. These are gracious overtures to us from the very beginning. So there's no, this is Christian. This is not just Protestant. So hopefully we all hear that, that this, is, this is a celebration of the grace of God, not just of um, where our traditions rediscovered it, but it, this is, as they say, the old, old story, the oldest story in the world. I think you ask a really good question, and I think to actually be Protestant is to be truly Catholic on a profound level. I, I refer to myself now as a Romans Catholic, and, um, um, and I think that, um, but I, I think here's the thing, um, because I've seen this in my church with um, uh, our dialogue with um, our Jewish brothers and sisters who are at the synagogue across from the park. I've seen this actually, I have great friendship with the Monsignor of Epiphany Church down the street. Uh, my child attends the Cub Scout troop. I think um, at Epiphany Church, and I think that, um, I think the problem in this country in all sorts of dialogue and whatever it comes to is that nobody actually knows who they are or what they actually believe. And so you think you do, but you really don't. And there's a lot of fear in that conversation. And uh, I think there's something powerful, though, when you know who you are and what you believe. As Daryl Davis just said, you can invite people who you actually disagree with to the table. I think one of the problems with dialogue in this country right now is that everything is subjective. And so to disagree with what I'm saying is actually to disagree with me personally. You know what I mean? And we've made it all so personal. This is why, like, people in the White House can't, or up in, in Congress, you know, I was, I was talking to somebody, um, I forgot his name, but um, he said that a long time ago, like, Democrats and Republicans after work would go and have dinner together, you know, and they would talk and they would sort stuff out because they weren't disagreeing with their person, they were disagreeing with a particular issue. And I think that's very powerful. And I don't disagree with Monsignor Ivers on, like, I don't disagree with his person. We disagree with a couple of issues. And uh, that's fine. And, um, and, uh, there's, um, and there's a bigger story going on here that actually connects us into the room. And I think that's something that we all need to recapture is that um, actually we're all, you know, we have different rooms and different houses, and there's different houses or rooms represented in this room as well. There's Methodists here, there's Baptists, there's uh, Episcopalians, Lutherans. We all have different rooms, but ultimately we're all in the same hall and uh, uh, the same house, and uh, that's around the creed. And if we're around the creed, then that's fine. But I do think that we, especially as Protestants and any of in our own tradition, we need to come to a better and deeper understanding of what we actually believe so that we can engage in thoughtful dialogue. And I don't see that happen very often in any circle. You know what I mean? The Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, rabbi who comes and we do a joint Bible study twice a year, nobody's saying, oh, we're basically all the same. Like that, it is perfectly clear that I am a Christian and he's a Jew and, uh, and we have disagreements on these issues. But they're the issues, and we can talk about it. And because of that, then we can begin to work together for the betterment of our neighborhood. Uh, we can come to a deeper understanding on certain issues. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, to show grace to a person doesn't mean I have to agree with them on everything. 
You know what I mean? And uh, to show grace to a person means that I can look beyond simply the issue and actually love you as a person. And I think that as, you begin, as a person begins to really understand the gospel, as we see Daryl Davis does, that opens you up to see people as people. And uh, we're all actually kind of groping in the dark looking for bread. And, um, and, uh, and so, but I think to understand who you are and what you believe enables you to walk into a room of difference and, uh, and serve people and come out okay and everybody like you. So, maybe. There it is. That's what I'll just, I'm going to say something really quick because this is sort of an issue that uh, I think about a lot. Um, I wrote an article uh, celebrating the Reformation um, that said, I will drink your tears with my champagne was the title of it. You know, I went to an ecumenical seminary with a ton of Catholics, and none of them ever had a problem with the fact that there was a small group of us that would celebrate the Protestant Reformation every year. Um, the people who did have a problem with it were actually um, Protestant and in the Episcopal Church for the most part, and a lot of men. And they would often bemoan to me how sad it was that we'd had a Reformation. And all I could think was, that's pretty damn convenient for you because you would be ordained regardless, but I would not. And so if it sounds like a personal issue for me, it probably is. But the other part of that is, and it's even more important, what I heard at my first Mockingbird conference saved my life. It saved my marriage. It saved my relationship with my parents and enabled me to forgive things that I never thought I could forgive. And without the Reformation, I would not have heard this message. Um, and so it's a massive celebration for me. Um, but we love our Catholic brothers and sisters. We're in close relationship with them. You know, I preached at the local Catholic church when we lived in New York after I was ordained, the priest asked me to. So I've never felt the tension there. It's actually just with uh, white men who are Episcopalian that I take issue <laughs> around the Reformation. So. You know, can I just say, too, that the reformers didn't want to, the, the assumption there uh, oftentimes is that the medieval Catholic, and I think Dave made a huge point. I think on one level what we're trying to reform for a number of us is like kind of the evangelical tradition that we've come that looks more like the medieval church ever did. I mean, if not a number of, uh, a number of levels, even worse. But um, I think that, you know, the, the profound thing is, is that there's an assumption there that everything in the medieval church was monolithic and exactly the same. And in the medieval church, there was a tremendous amount of diversity in schools of thought. And one of the things that the reformers were trying to do was to uh, kind of maintain that local Catholicity. You know, I mean, John Calvin actually said, you know, when it comes to antiquity, we agree with you on a number of things. And when it comes to this historic faith in this historic church, we agree with you on a number of things. But it is this one little moment right here, this point, which I think on a profound level American evangelicalism has lost its way in this regard, um, uh, that, that we, have, we have a grievance and we have to discuss. But actually what the reformers were trying to do was capture a local Catholicity, which was very common in the medieval church, and trying to bring that all back and a local consensus in the areas 
um, to bring that all back together and to really bring the church back to its basics and back to its beginnings. Because oftentimes when it becomes very broad, it loses its way. And really, all things need to be honed. And so, and I think that's what the Reformation does, and that's why it needs to continue to reform. And it continues to pop up in, even in, in Roman circles and in, uh, and in Protestant circles, and now even more so, it needs to happen in evangelical circles. I don't know if you just saw Jerry Falwell Jr. said, we need to raise up an army of evangelicals to get out the fake Republicans. This is like a meddling of the church and state in two kingdoms which one of the things that the reformers protested against was the meddling of these two kingdoms and wanted to diversify it and separate the two. And I think that this is, so, I mean, the church always needs to be reforming and coming back to the basics. I mean, I need that every day. That's what St. Paul says when he talks about the renewing of your mind, is coming back to the gospel. You need a reformation in your life. I need a reformation in my life every dang day, about every five seconds. I need to hear the gospel again right now because I'm about to forget it and start virtue signaling all over the room. So I'm going to get off the mic. There it goes. Okay, we're going to have a little short communion service. If you can't stay, I understand, but you can grab your bulletin that you got, your program. You'll, you might need that, but I think some of it will also be on the screen. Uh, the book 